Welcome to another episode of Tread Lightly. I am your co-host and running coach, Amanda Brooks of Run to the Finish. And I'm your co-host, Laura of Laura Norris Running. So today we're going to do something a little different, and we are going to do a audience Q&A. So you've had a bunch of questions, and we thought we would just dive into some of them. But first, we want to say thanks as always for listening. If you have not had a chance yet to review the podcast, we would beg and plead that you might take five seconds to do that. It really does help other runners to know what they might get from it, why they should listen to it, and we hope to just make training easier for everyone. Absolutely. And thank you for listening. Please share it with all your running friends. Also, we appreciate you doing that. And kind of segueing to this episode, if you have any questions you want to see addressed in future episodes, whether a whole topic or a Q&A, please let us know. We try to answer usually a question each episode along with a larger topic. So we want to help you with what you have questions on. A hundred percent. We are here to help. So Let's dive in. What's our first question? Yes. So at Mrs. Melissa Fitzlaff asked, what are your best training tips for doing marathon training in summer weather? Choose a different race. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, though. <laughs> it's crazy. All of the big races feel like they're in the fall. And so all of us have had to train through summer at some point. Um, and there are moments where you are questioning everything about your life for having done it. But I think one of the biggest pieces, honestly, comes back to the mental side of things. So we've talked a lot about physical adaptations, but the mental side of summer training is how can I lean into and just find ways to enjoy this? It is hot. I am insanely sweaty. It feels a little bit harder, but oh my gosh, I didn't have to wear so many clothes and I didn't think I was going to slip because it's not icy and God, I love it when the sun is out and man, today there's a breeze and oh, I can try that trail I had thought about because it has a bunch of shade. So there is a lot of like the mental to it, I think, finding ways to stop bemoaning the summer and sort of lean into this is what it is and how can I have as much fun as possible with training, knowing that because I'm putting the time in now, that cooler weather is going to pay off for me so, so much. So when I am out there suffering and hot, I keep thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to be 20 degrees cooler and I'm going to run like the wind. And if it's not, I have trained for this. <laughs> yes, because fall races are getting like increasingly warmer with climate change and like Chicago can be so hot. So at least you're prepared for it. It's not like sometimes coming off of a spring marathon training cycle where it was cold and then all of a sudden it's 70 degrees on the first weekend of May. Yeah, 100%. And honestly, even so 2021 Chicago was... I don't know, 75 degrees at the start line and 80% humidity. And I was not prepared because Colorado is not that. Mm -mm. <laughs> I yeah, was running in 60 degrees and no humidity every morning. And so the folks coming in from Florida, where I lived previously, actually fared much better than many of us because they had been training through that. So yes, we hope for cooler days, but know that this may be setting you up to have a better race because you're training through some tough stuff. 
Yes. Yes. The one tip I would give is don't like feel like your training plan has to be like exactly set in stone because you can't predict how a week will align for the weather. So what I do for like a lot of my athletes is we'll tweak workouts based on their weather that week. So, you know, in marathon training, you're doing a lot of tempo runs, threshold work and stuff. I'll chop their threshold runs or tempo runs into like kilometer or mile repeats with some short rest in between. And I find that just really helps their heart rate from getting up too high for the effort in that run that even 60 second little jog just is mentally and physically making the hotter weather more tolerable. So adjust your training plan, like especially if it's a heat wave or something. And then also know it's okay to go super, super slow on your long runs. It's okay to take walk breaks. I always just tell athletes to take them on your watch rather than pausing your watch so that when you look back, you just understand what you were doing at that time and it helps you with training. But there's nothing wrong with going really, really slow on those long runs. A hundred percent. Yes. And episode 15, we dive into really tactical tips for dealing with summer from hydration and paces and all kinds of things. So if you want a lot more tips, episode 15, will cover everything summer there. So then the next question is from, and I, I apologize if I butcher this name. I, lo- I didn't learn to read phonetically. Um, it's from at Shima Masumi. How do I improve running cadence and why should I improve running cadence? This is such an interesting one to me because I think sometimes we get overly obsessed with some of these numbers and hearing that we have to improve them. Um, So 180 is the number that usually gets thrown around. And for a long time, it was kind of considered the golden number of cadence. But what we've seen now is it, it's not like the end-all, be-all. You don't have to be at 180. And in fact, for a lot of you, if you're running a 12-minute mile, you're probably not going to be at a 180 cadence. But maybe you're working your way to get up to 160, 165. And when someone is doing a sprint or at the end of a race, they may be at like 190 or higher. So I think... If you're looking at cadence and you feel like you want to improve it, the main reason to me to improve it is to prevent yourself from overstriding. We want to make you a little more efficient, 100%, that's part of it. But to me, the main reason is usually you're overstriding, which we know is going to lead to injury. So when you try to run faster, you're stretching your legs out instead of taking shorter, faster steps. Yes, yeah. And then people take that step fast or forward instead of extending their hips back due to mobility issues that many runners have. I do think that 180 point you made is really important because that came from an observational study done by Dr. Jack Daniels on Olympic runners in the three kilometer trials. So 3K pace is really blazing fast for those people. And those are elites and they like averaged 180, which means some people were higher, some people were lower. And Like you said, when you run that fast, your cadence is going to be higher. I guarantee you probably all those people had lower cadences doing their easy runs. It just wasn't how the data was collected. Yeah, I think that's super important, like to know where these numbers come from. Um, What's interesting once you start to pay attention to cadence is 
I can run like a 170 to 175 cadence at a variety of paces now because I have worked on it. So to the question for how to improve cadence, there are a number of things you can do. One of the easiest is to get like a metronome app free on your phone and you do like a little run and use your watch to see what it says your current cadence is. Currently, maybe you're at 150. So you might set the app to 155. Run a lap around the track trying to match your footfalls to the 155. Step it up to 160. Repeat. So do that going all the way up to 180 where you're just testing out what does this feel like and Initially, if you started at 150 and you go to 180 in that workout, it's going to feel crazy. 180 is going to feel super, super hard. And so you're going to know, like, I don't want to start there. (laughs) But you can keep using then that metronome on your easy runs to kind of like check in at points during the run and see like, okay, I'm at 150, but I can tell it would actually feel a little better. I'm a little more efficient if I can get it to 160. So just you have to practice it. Honestly, um, I say don't obsess about it and think about it constantly, but checking in on yourself during your runs really helps. Yes. And the other thing I would add to that is strides and you could use a metronome during strides, but just strides overall, what you're doing is you, as long as you focus on a high cadence and good form during that, you're essentially like rewiring your nerve neuromuscular system to have the form to maintain a higher cadence. And even if you're only doing it for a short burst, your neuromuscular system is very, it has high plasticity. It can change. And so it's kind of like a top-down approach to just kind of train your body to have the proper form, the forward lean, the high turnover to maintain that higher cadence. And you'll probably find that you do that on strides and it can become, your cadence will go higher on easy runs, even if you're not actively thinking about it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of drills too, honestly. So whether that's fast feet, so you're just kind of practicing like you see those football players do like standing still fast feet um, or practicing high knees and, you know, things like that are, again, like you said, drills are teaching our brain what we want our feet to do. So we have to think less about it later. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you don't want to be using a metronome in a race. So I think (laughs) like, I mean, the metronome has its place and it's valuable. I've used it before. You've used, you mentioned you've used it before, but it's, you don't want to like develop a crutch on it. Yeah. It's entirely a drill to use. Yep. A hundred percent. Okay. Fantastic. So our next question from Lynn 86 Running tips for heavier and slower runners. I actually love this discussion um, because it's kind of funny to me in some ways. We think, oh, because you're heavier, so much needs to change. But in truth, we're all just runners and most of us have to start at the same point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's starting at the same point. And I know like there used to be this misconception that heavier runners are going to get stress fractures more often because they're putting more weight on their joints and bones or they're more injury prone. And I think more and more we're finding that that's outdated. Yep. And one of the recommendations that used to be thrown out all the time was, oh, as a heavier runner, you should run on softer surfaces. But then there was actually a new study kind of saying like, yes, sometimes softer surfaces are good, but 
what you're giving up by running on only those soft surfaces often is some good running mechanics and the increase in leg stiffness. So we kind of forget that we do actually want our feet and our ankles to get stiff when we run. It's how they create this spring action. Um, And your race is probably going to be on the road. So alternate like and pay attention to what feels better feels good for you this honestly again it applies to every single runner like even in the summer I still tend to do at least one treadmill run a week because my body feels good for doing it so I think the big thing for me when someone is heavier is honestly just treat yourself like a beginner period start with run walk alternate surfaces go get shoes that feel good yeah i mean like it doesn't have to be this drastically different thing and like if i have a heavier runner who's a more experienced runner i pretty much treat them the same like all body types can run and like and i think books like lauren flashman's good for a girl are really good at thinking about this like we have to move past this stereotype of runners are these lean people whose legs don't jiggle when they jump up and down like all sorts of body types can run. I think we've seen that a lot more over the past few years in social media and stuff. The one question I get sometimes is like, is your fueling needs different because you're a heavier runner because you simply have more mass, you weigh more and carbohydrate oxidation rates are independent of body mass. So whether you're, you know, a size two or a size 20, you're going to oxidize carbohydrates at the same rate. And by carbohydrate oxidation rates, I'm talking about oxidation rates during exercise. So remaining here, what you're taking to fuel during your long runs, during your races, those 30 to 60 grams of carbs per hour or 60 to 90 grams of carbs per hour are not dependent on body weight. However, how much you eat before a run, how much you eat after a run, your overall energy needs, those are dependent on body weight. There are some people who suggest that maybe like heavier runners like do need to go up on the higher ends. Lighter runners can also go up on the higher ends. They just might get more advantage, but fuel your runs well. And if you are thinking about weight loss, don't not fuel your runs and don't overly restrict your energy intake. Like if you are starting to run for weight loss and you want to lose weight, don't starve yourself. Like eat enough to support your running and aim for mild caloric deficits that aren't going to lose lean muscle mass and ruin your metabolic system along the way. Yes. And since they tacked on slower to this as well, um, I will say no matter your size, no matter your speed, you can be strength training. And we know that's going to make a difference. It's going to make your body more stable. It's going to prevent injuries. It's going to help you run faster. It's going to help you build muscle, which is going to give you speed, weight loss if that's the goal. Um, And no matter your size or your speed, you can play with different like speed type of workouts. So even when I have folks who have started out and they are just power walking with us, which I define as building up to being able to walk a mile in 15 minutes, we will still play with intervals in that. It will be, okay, we're going to do one minute intervals where you walk hard Um, and so you are really pumping those arms and you're really getting after it. Um, and you'll be surprised that adding in, even if it's one time a week, I don't think you have to go crazy with it. What a difference that will make in helping your easy stuff feel better. 
um, and being able to see a little bit more of that progress. So don't be afraid to try and adding in some little bits of hard stuff. Absolutely. Like I think, especially for slower runners, sometimes they get in this trap of I'm not fast, so I shouldn't do speed work, but you should do the same type of training that other runners do. So do your strides, progressively build into harder workouts. You might actually see like really big rewards trickle down rather than if you just stuck to I'm slow. So I'm just going to only train slow. Yeah. A hundred percent. The next question is from the same Instagram handle at slin86. And he asked, I sort of truncated the question, but how to get into a racing mindset when starting to race? How do you start shaping your mindset to aim for personal bests in a race compared to how your mindset is in training? That's a really great question. I do feel like I struggled with this in racing for a while because you have to kind of dig into the well on race day and it's hard. Um, One of the things that helped me tremendously was doing fast finish long runs or fast finish workouts. And I was surprised what a massive shift that made for me. So I'm doing my normal long run and then I decide, hey, the last 10 minutes or 15 minutes or two miles, whatever, you know, you've kind of built up to, I'm going to push faster than race pace. And it is hard. Like it's hard because your legs are already tired, but I am mentally during that time, visualizing the finish line, visualizing that I feel tired and it feels hard, but look, I'm doing it. Look, my legs are still turning over. I can hold this. I can hold this. And then on race day, you have that memory to pull from. And for me, that one has been really useful. I second that. I use those runs a lot myself. I use them a lot of my athletes. And they often do seem to help with holding on at the end of the race when everything hurts because it's not unfamiliar territory. Episode 23 does deal, delve a lot into mindset tricks also. but So I recommend listening to that. The other thing I'll add is know that it takes practice. Like Sometimes we as runners don't view running as a skill sport. But racing is a skill. And so it might take a few races to understand how to push during them, how to really go into the well. And that's where for runners, I think sometimes doing something like a 5K or a mile race or 10K can really help is you can do those more often or you can do them as tune-ups for longer races. They feel slightly lower stakes because you recover more quickly, but you can get that repeated practice and then apply it into longer races. Yeah, 100%. I really think we covered a ton in that episode that'll be really, really useful. Um, I think we did some book recommendations like How Bad Do You Want It and things like that are another good place to start. The next question is from at bob.ill.head. What adaptations are targeted when doing tempo versus intervals versus other speed work? And I think here... When he said intervals, he's probably meaning like VO2 max effort or like very, very hard probably. Yeah, I'll let you take some science on this. Assuming that we're talking tempo is being like moderate intensity, so like marathon pace to threshold, which probably for a lot of you listening is like 15K pace, 10K to half marathon, really hour race pace. That's tempo. Probably what he's meaning by tempo is threshold or slightly slower, but still moderate versus intervals. If I'm just assuming he's saying VO2 max or quite hard, we're looking at 
if you're using a three zone system, the zone two versus zone three, if you're using the more common five zone scale, that'd be like zone three to four versus zone five. And you are there are differences there in terms of physiological responses. So in terms of muscle fibers, you are going to get more recruitment of your fast twitch muscle fibers doing VO2 max intervals than you would in tempo runs. Tempo runs are going to more so work on the fatigue resistance of your slow twitch muscle fibers and on those intermediary muscle fibers that can go either way. Both have value for endurance runners. Tempo runs in the moderate intensity up to threshold, you have AMPK signaling going on there. So you're going to be really growing those mitochondria, um, the powerhouse of the cell that makes a lot of energy from oxygen. You're going to see changes to cardiac output, the heart, plasma volume, stroke volume that helps send more oxygen-rich blood to your muscles. You also get the huge benefit there of improved lactate shuttling, which means your body's taking the lactate that's a byproduct of oxidative metabolism, fast glycolysis, and shuttling it back into the muscles to turn it back into energy via gluconeogenesis. That's all to say is that you get better at holding pretty challenging paces for longer because your muscles aren't going to burn as much. You don't have that fatigue from hydrogen ions that are the byproduct of lactate. Lactate itself isn't a big bad. Again, you're using it for energy. I also find that like mentally tempo runs or even like longer threshold intervals really help runners like get uncomfortable with prolonged discomfort. So like a lot of runners love intervals because they can push hard and then they can rest. Tempo runs, you have to kind of learn to sit on the edge and then stay on that edge without going over. That's a really valuable skill if you're racing. A hundred percent. I agree. I think intervals teach you how, you know, those short, hard, fast intervals teach you how to really dig deep and they kind of force you, like you said, with strides, your form is just naturally, you're going to drive your knees higher. You're going to have to think about cadence. Like some of that is going to come into play there, which is going to help you overall. Um, I think mentally when you do those short, hard, fast things, and then you get to do an easy run later, suddenly your easy run is like, oh, this is so much more enjoyable because I don't feel like I'm going to vomit. Um, but yes, those tempo or doing marathon goal pace, half marathon goal pace miles during your training is settling into this is what it's going to feel like on race day and how do I keep myself here? And I think because we kind of know how to settle into our easy pace and then we know how to push relax for intervals, tempo does teach you like, oh, how do I push forward and then stay forward, like not let off the gas because our natural tendency is to want to let off the gas. We don't want it to feel quite so difficult. So some of it is all the adaptations you're getting physically, but then some of it is the mental stuff that's happening because you're doing these different variety of runs and super important to have all the variety in your schedule. I think too often, too many free plans out there still have like you only doing certain types of workouts because you're running long and not doing any of the short, hard, fast stuff. Um, so having it all is important. Absolutely. Yeah. It's super important whether you kind of vary it week to week or you 
micro scale periodize it over like a few weeks where you block intervals for a few weeks, block tempo runs, do both a week. Finding that combination to keep it all in gets the benefits of both. And intervals do have that trickle down effect of improving your running economy that I think is really valuable for long distance runners. And when we look right now at like trail racing and how, you know, Western states just had a crazy record set for women, trail races are getting faster than ever. It is because trail runners are beginning to adapt more interval work, whether it's, you know, hard uphill repeats like Courtney Dahlwalter has said she does, or even sometimes track workouts for those runners. Like there's a trickle down effect just because you're running slow in your race doesn't mean you should skip intervals or your tempo runs. Yeah, I'm excited for that message to keep getting out there. Um, So another question, because we just had the gear episode, is what stats on your watch are actually helpful? And I love this because there is so much data now. There is so much data. And it's funny because now I think about it, I actually stopped using Garmin also because the unproductive thing that would like flash five minutes into a run drove me crazy because I understand what they're trying to do. But those algorithms are imperfect, especially if they're coming from a risk-based heart rate monitor. You can't really assess VO2 max. So I'm probably an outlier here. Like I like the watch stats that kind of try to quantify your training load in terms of like, you know, based on your mileage and your approximate intensity, here's what your overall training load has been. I like that metric. I don't use a ton of the other stats on my watch, though, to really make informed decisions. Maybe resting heart rate. I guess that's another one I like is resting heart rate. How well are you recovering? Yeah. Are you using or are people interested in running power? Um, so I dabbled in running power for a bit, and I, it's still like a very imprecise science. It's not like watts on a bike that are easier to calculate and easier to really use. Like, it's just not a precise science. Yeah. At the moment when athletes have asked about it, I have generally said like, we can use it if you want to, but I need you to pick what statistic we're focused on. So is it heart rate? Is it running power? Is it like, what is the thing instead of focusing on all of it because it's too much and then you're trying to balance different things. And so Heart rate, I like. It is telling me exactly what my body is doing, like how hard it thinks it's working. Um, so heart rate is the metric I use the most. Um, and for most people beyond that, I'm like, what's your pace and how long have you been running are like the three things I generally care about. Um, at the end of the day, I love seeing you know, vertical and all of that. It's fun. I love seeing a lot of the other numbers, but when it really comes to what I'm paying attention to, you know, it's the basic data. Yeah. And I probably drive my athletes insane. They're like, how much of my watch stats do I want? And I'm like, I want to know how you felt. Did it feel like, how did this pace feel? Did it feel smooth and relaxed and efficient? Or did you feel like you were straining even on an easy run? And that's something like, I know my Coros lets you put in RPE and that's kind of handy for looking back, but it's not something watch stats quantify, but it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Garmin now has that. When I finish my runs, it asks me scale of one to 10. And then after that, it asks me to put like a smiley face level on how it felt, um, which is great. I haven't really seen where that's maybe showing up in my data later because 
I'm probably just not looking for it yet. Um, but I like that it's forcing people to think about their RPE because we keep saying like, run your easy runs easy. But if you never have to stop and think like, well, did that feel easy or not feel easy? Then I don't think you're ever doing it. So I like that Chorus also has that and that these brands are asking you to just take that second when you finish to dial into how the run felt for you. And the other stats, yeah, just ignore it. Like I know there's like stress scores and stuff and some athletes find that helpful, but if you don't find it helpful, periodize your data, like use the data that helps you at the current time. And it's okay to change what data you are using based on your needs at that time. A hundred percent. You may go through phases where maybe you're just loving running power and that's like your go-to and then it's heart rate or you're loving the sleep data. And then you get to a point like I did where you were like, I know if I slept well or not. I don't, I don't want you to tell me I didn't slept well. (laughs) Um, So yeah, use what's truly beneficial. Don't get too hung up in all of it. Uh, next question from Guinevere, how do you protect your skin from sun on the runs? See, I really like this question. And I think you just, as we're recording this, I just saw in your email that you had something about like sunscreen for runners. I'm working on a similar post. Um, so I'm a huge proponent of a combination of sunscreen and clothing and hats to protect from runs or from sun on runs. Um, I'm super fair skinned. I will burn super easily. Like literally if we're out cycling, especially, and I miss a patch of skin with sunscreen, that patch of skin will turn bright red. So I use super goop play sunscreen. Um, I really like it cause it's sweat resistant and it doesn't sting your eyes. It feels like lotion. It doesn't have that tacky feel that some sunscreens feel. It's SPF 50 and it's EU compliant, which means it doesn't contain a lot of possibly carcinogenic chemicals in it that sometimes pop up in other sunscreens in the States. Um, I always wear a hat. I always wear sunglasses to protect my eyes from UV rays. And then a lot of times in summer, I wear shirts rather than just a sports bra to protect my shoulders and my back in areas that are sometimes harder to get sunscreen on that, you know, just as an extra layer of protection. I know everyone's different on that. I just worry about skin cancer risk living at 5,000 feet. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Kula sunscreen. Um, that's worked well for me for many years. I also like, uh, beauty counter has a stick version and that one can be nice. Like if you know, you're going to be out a long time and so shove it in that hydration pack. Um, and that way it's something you can pull out easily and put on. I like that. Um, I do wear a lot more hats than I used to and people forget about sunglasses, but that's protecting those little crow's feet too. Um, But yeah, your eyeballs need protection. Um, And so I am basically never without sunglasses almost any point of the year. Um, Now the rest of my body, I will admit, I am not as great about. I remember to spray like my shoulders and chest if we go up even higher in the mountains. Otherwise I kind of forget because I just tend to brown and not burn. So that's not great. I should be better about sunscreen everywhere. I will be the first to admit it. <laughs> That's where those sprays can come in handy. Like we have, I think Supergroup makes a spray version of that. And sometimes like, hmm, I should use that. Cause like in summer I'll do my arms and legs, but sometimes in like spring or fall, I'm like, eh, my legs are fine. It's not, not a smart thing to say. <laughs> 
No, it's not. It's it's. I need to get better. I'm very very good about my face, but I need to um, care for the rest of me. It's equally. a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work to put on all that sunscreen. Yeah. Yeah. So those were all the listener questions we had today. I think we had a pretty some pretty good conversations around that. Like we said at the start of the episode, if you have a question you want to see addressed, please send it to Amanda, myself, or our Instagram handle at Tread Lightly Running. 100%. Like we said, we are here for you and we're super excited to keep chatting with you. It's been great already to see your response to episodes and hearing what things you want to learn more about because that tells us exactly where to spend our time. And as we mentioned at the start of the episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and thank you for listening.